So, if you will, open up your Bibles to Acts chapter 14. (laughs) Going through the text of the book of Acts. And let's pray before we get into it. So thankful to be outside, Lord, and uh, just to follow even in your example, Jesus, of uh, preaching outdoors and preaching where people could hear. And even think of Acts chapter 16, where it was the custom of women to gather at the, the river in Philippi. And there at the river, they would pray. And people knew where to find them praying. And I think that's just true here for us as word is spreading that we're outdoors in the amphitheater or in the park and people at the dog park, people walking by, Lord, that they would know there's a church here and that they would hear your word today. I think of what Charles Spurgeon said about Jesus preaching outdoors on the Sermon on the Mount and how no greater pulpit existed in the world than that grassy hill and adorned with flowers and grass and and to see just the beauty of your creation that would prompt us to respond to your word. And I pray that you would do just that today in us as we gather and go through the word and have your work in our heart. Press the words deep into us. Change us, Lord, to be conformed into your image. In Jesus' name, we pray. We say amen. 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 All right, moving on in the book of Acts chapter 14, we're in Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, He's working his way up through uh, Galatia and the regions of Galatia. And if you um, were able to follow along with our service lyrics during worship, calvaryprineville.com slash lyrics, um, I posted at the bottom of those lyrics a map of the book of Acts, this first missionary journey. And if you're able to kind of look on that, you can also just Google on your phone, Paul's first missionary journey map. And you'll be able to see the routes that he had taken uh, up into the region of Galatia, the cities that he's visited. Uh, as we go through Acts 14, he's going to double back, go back through those cities again, drop back down to the harbor, hit the Mediterranean Sea, and go back to Antioch uh, in Syria. So uh, it's just helpful to know the, the map there as we're going through the book. And so looking at verse 14. <clears throat> Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. So now we're getting up into this area of Iconium and by the rest of the chapter, Lystra and Derbe. Uh, Iconium was this fertile valley, this fertile plateau. It was uh, known to be a center of agriculture. So we here in Primeville can appreciate that, that type of community. It was a major city in the area. And as was Paul's custom, he'd go to the Jews first and then to the Greek in ministry. So he went into this synagogue and he began to preach the gospel. And one phrase that just sticks to me as I'm reading through this verse is this phrase, so spoke. Did you notice it? And he so spoke that a great multitude of Jews, but also Greeks, believed. You might underline that. He so spoke. Or maybe you have an ESV translation. It says, he spoke in such a way. Uh, There was something that just, uh, through the Holy Spirit, speaking through Paul, uh, that as he spoke, the, 
the Lord was speaking to the people through him. One man once said that preaching is logic on fire. There was something in the way that he spoke. He was preaching the gospel. He was speaking the word. He was speaking the reality of sin and the need for man to have a savior. And that that savior was Jesus Christ. And as he spoke to the Jews, he no doubt went to those messianic prophecies of the Old Testament. He spoke of uh, the Messiah, the anointed one who was to come. He spoke in such a way. And there was something about the dynamic in the way that he spoke. Uh, he spoke in a way that hit people's hearts. He spoke in a way that showed that he himself was convinced of such a thing. Aldous Huxley, maybe you've heard the name, used to be a skeptic who uh, didn't believe in Jesus. And one day he was on his way to listen to the great George Whitfield preach. Have you guys heard of George Whitfield during the time of the founding of our country? He was a guy that just preached seven times a day. He would preach to tens of thousands of people and they would hear the gospel and they would believe. And Aldous Huxley was a skeptic who didn't believe the gospel. And as he was on his way, uh, someone said to him, I'm so surprised, Aldous Huxley, that you would believe such a man. And he says, I don't believe in such a man, but that man believes in such a God. He's worth going and listening to. And so as he went, uh, I don't know, maybe you know, you can look it up. What happened to Aldous Huxley? But these guys heard uh, Paul speak in such a way that they believed in the Lord Jesus. It's a wonderful thing to see both the Jews and the Greeks get saved. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who would believe, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. So let's keep going into the next verse here. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. This is a pattern that we've already seen in chapter 13, and it's kind of something that follows Paul wherever he goes. The unbelieving ones, uh, some of them are envious of the response that he's getting from the word. They're going to go and they're going to stir up. They're going to cause a controversy, and they're going to poison minds against the brethren. Uh, something that happens when there's gossip is the poisoning of minds or the poisoning of wealth. And they went about, we're going to see them later on, also conniving to hinder people from believing in the gospel. And so they just go around, they begin poisoning the mind, they begin speaking uh, against them and blaspheming uh, the apostles. But that doesn't hinder the preaching of the gospel. That doesn't cause the disciples and, and the preachers to flee the city and to go somewhere else. It says, what did they do in verse 3? They stayed there a long time. They ended up staying there longer and speaking boldly in the Lord. The literal translation there, speaking boldly in the Lord, is that they spoke in reliance on the Lord. Are you at a place in your Christianity where you feel the Lord is stirring you to share the gospel with people at school, in the workplace, with your team, with that club that you're a part of? You are realizing in the scripture that the Lord is saying, hey, it's time to uh, open up your mouth and to tell your friends, to tell your kids, to tell your aunt and uncle, to tell your neighbor the gospel. And uh, the beauty is that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can speak as in verse one in such a way, or you can so speak uh, that, that they would also believe. You can speak in a way in verse three that is boldly in the Lord. 
or that is in reliance on the Lord. I don't think there's anybody that feels like they just have this incredible gift. And man, every time I talk, I'm just such a great speaker that people hear and they believe and they just, everyone wants to be a Christian around me. And the testimony of my life is I'm just at the foot of the Lord every time I go to speak and I'm just relying on him that it's by his power, Acts chapter one, verse eight, that we can open up our mouth and be witnesses of the gospel. Uh, ever since I was a youth, since I was in high school, and the Lord put on my heart that I was to open up my mouth and tell people about Jesus, uh, and I would just, I would just step out in faith. I would just trust, and I didn't know what I was going to say. I didn't know what connections I was going to make. I didn't know how I was going to bring it to bear on this person's heart, and what's their story, and what are their struggles, and what are they going to argue with me about, and what great, you know, argument are they going to have that I'm not going to know how to counter it. And I just, so I just won't share. And, and there have been times where I've walked away and I just don't share. And, and I'm ashamed of that, you know, but those times that I do open up my mouth, I'll tell you the Holy spirit helps me, helps me and will help you to so speak in such a way as you're in reliance on the Lord. It's the Holy spirit that does this. And we can be not ashamed of the gospel because it's the gospel, it's the story, it's the good news that's the power of God into salvation. It's not you, it's not your charisma, it's it's not your well thought out, you know, A leads to B and B leads to C and hope and now they'll see that and then they'll believe. It's the power of the Lord as we rely upon him. And so uh, there's a great example for us in the book of Acts. And, and it even happens when people are poisoning minds at the same time. You may be preaching the gospel and then someone else in the workplace or someone else at the team, they're poisoning the mind. And that's all the more an opportunity for you to share as you would bear witness to the word of his grace. And what a great, noble declaration. I think it was John Stott that said, it's such a noble title for the gospel, that it's the word of grace. The word of his grace. Uh, I love one of Chuck Smith's books. You know, Chuck Smith started Calvary Chapel back in the late 60s and and just a great, wonderful uh, pastor that we have uh, had the honor of having in our lives and beginning the movement of Calvary Chapels. And just a man, no doubt, but but such wisdom as he wrote a book called Why Grace Changes Everything. Does anybody here attest to that? That grace changes everything. Have you ever been a part of a fellowship or relationships that are just all law and no grace? Just strict and stringent and wooden in uh, even some of those tough interpretations of the scripture. Just there's woodenness and, and there's just no grace. And Chuck Smith wrote a book about how the grace of the gospel changes everything. How the grace of the gospel moves us to want to obey. Grace makes us want to live in obedience. Grace makes us want to follow and live in righteousness. And the word of his grace, that's a noble title for the gospel. Uh, have you ever heard the acronym for grace? G-R-A-C-E, right? God's riches at Christ's expense. I remember hearing that in high school. Oh, that's what grace is. And then as I got older, I'm like, dumb acronyms. Who needs them? You know, and as I was studying this morning, I was like, what? I'm going to write that out. God. And I just as I wrote out that acronym, it just was impactful to me again today. Wow. The, the word of grace is that we can have all of God's riches. Think of that. 
all of the creator of the universe's riches. But it comes at an expense. Whose expense is it at? Is it at your expense? Is it at your works and your labors and your toils and your days of victory and your days of successes and that day you completed your Bible reading plan or that day you did open up your mouth and share the gospel or that mission trip you went on or your pedigree or your heritage or that your grandpa started the Lutheran church in, you know, McMinnville, you know, 70 years. Is that what it depends on? No, we get God's riches freely, but it it did come at a cost. It came at Christ's expense. And we were not redeemed with corruptible things like the blood of bulls and goats or silver and gold, but we were bought with the price of the precious blood of Jesus who died as a lamb, who died as a lamb who was slain. And so what is grace? Grace is God's riches towards us that comes at Christ's expense. It's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. And it not only applies to salvation, to our redemption, but it applies to our sanctification. It applies to now our living and our victory and the pushing out of the old worldly stuff of our life and the living for the new kingdom of God. That even comes by God's grace. As the book of Galatians was written to these people, in Antioch, in Iconium, in Lystra, in Derby, The book of Galatians says, I marvel how soon you've turned away from the grace of God to follow a whole nother gospel, which is not a gospel, Paul says in Galatians. It's not a gospel if someone's preaching you to, to you works, that it's by your works that you're saved, that it's by your works that you're redeemed, that it's even by your works that you're going to complete this race to the end. It says, don't let anyone bewitch you to turn away from the gospel of grace. I hope that you'll be able to breathe deeply today of grace. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, on Think Biblically with Sean McDowell. He interviewed an Australian author who says, I was born and raised in Australia. And when I go to Australia, I'm, I'm reminded, you know, I spend time in the States and I go to Australia and I get off the plane in Australia and where I live, there's just the smell of honeysuckle in the air. And it's such a sweet smelling city that I live in. And it just, it just permeates how you even think and live because you're just walking around with sweetness in your nostrils. And kind of like this morning, have you smelled today's, uh, prepared food for us? Pulled pork, I'm thinking, or something. I can smell that, right? Barbecue, right? Uh, just, you know, that's what grace does to us. Remember when Bono from U2 wrote the song Grace? You're like, I don't know if this guy's born again or not, but I think he's on to something about grace. Grace, he says, it's more than a name of a girl. It's an idea that's changed the world. That's the grace of the Lord Jesus. So what should we preach when we go out there? Preach the word of his grace. You think your coworker has heard anything of grace? Do you think that assistant coach on your team knows much of grace? Do you think the, the cat driver, you know, or the mailman or the checker at, you think the checker at Wagner's IGA has had someone speak with them of grace lately? Don't give them a list of demands. Speak to them about the, the word of his grace. And how wonderful at the end of verse three that the Lord bears witness to the word so often by granting signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. So many times we still see that today. Signs and wonders being done wherever the gospel is preached. Never to replace 
the gospel. But what does a sign do? What does a sign do? Points you in the direction. It points, right? It points in a direction. And that's what, when the Lord is good and gracious enough to, to give us a healing within the church or to, you know, just do some just incredible miracle, it, it, he points to that. I had the, just, just the wonderful, just honor to just get to, to be walking in step with the Lord last Saturday. Uh, we were at the Polina Rodeo, you might remember. And Saturday is a big rodeo. And then Saturday night is the jackpot team roping. And that usually goes into like, you know, 10 o'clock or something. It's dark. There's lights. A band is getting ready to play. Uh, Tatum and I walked around the rodeo with Rita the donkey with the sign telling people about the church service the next day and the outreach breakfast we were doing. And just a fun day being out in the Polina community that we love so much. And uh, as um, we were kind of tending to the donkey and tending to the horse we took with us, uh, I noticed that the crowd, this is late. I mean, we're at like 8.30, 9 o'clock. It's dark. And I noticed that just people are moving around kind of, oh, my wedding ring's really loose. <laughs> <laughs> Get a rubber ring, they said. Well, it works when they send you the right size. But anyways, it falls off all the time. <laughs> so I just noticed people moving around frantically. And and uh, I heard that, oh, there's a little boy, little four-year-old boy in a blue plaid shirt that's been missing for about a half an hour. And they'd already announced it to the rodeo twice. And now they stopped the team roping and um, they said, okay, everybody go out and search for this boy. And so there's team ropers riding their horses around looking and people are looking under horse trailers and in trailers and in the cabs of their trucks. And about a half hour went by and nobody's found this boy. And we're out in the desert, you know, there's not much around there. And uh, you can just tell that the stress level in all of the people at the rodeo, maybe 600 people or more, these people are getting stressed. They don't know where this boy could be. And I just felt like the Lord said, go, uh, go pray that this boy be found. And I was like, okay, I get, maybe I'll get like four people that I know around me to pray and we'll pray. And the Lord's like, no, go get the microphone and pray so that everybody will give me glory when the boy is found. I'm like, okay. And I just start walking towards the grandstand and just people are looking for this kid all around. And I walk up there and the girl that's announced the team roping, now all of a sudden she's like, you know, the rescue coordinator. And she goes to me, I don't know how much more of this I can do. And I said, would it be okay if I prayed over this? And she goes, just hands me the microphone, you know, the whole grandstand. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm Rory. We, I pastor the church here in Polina and, and uh, we're doing the rodeo, the church service here. And just I want to pray that we'll find this little boy. And so we prayed. And many people began thanking me. Thank you for praying. Thank you. His uncle was there. Thank you. That's just so helpful. And uh, I call Adam and I say, Adam, put a, an announcement on the church bulletin page to start praying for this little boy. And right when I hang up with Adam, uh, I, I call one of the state troopers in our church. And as I'm calling him to just let him know, you might want to get some people on the highway. Maybe there's an abduction. Right when I call him, uh, it's been about five minutes since I prayed. Uh, they said that they'd found the boy. And that he had been uh, playing with the sheep and, and uh, must have fallen asleep in the hay. His little little boy blue or whatever, you know, uh, <laughs> fell asleep in the hay. And just people were rejoicing and grandma's just telling me, thank you so much for praying. And the rodeo announcer came to the breakfast the next day. He said, thank you so much for praying. Uh, I would like you to come and pray for the rodeo this morning to start the rodeo. And so went to the rodeo and the announcer just said, 
Guys, I don't know that I've witnessed a miracle like this um, where not only does a, a whole rodeo just stop and everyone goes out to help, like that is just a testimony of the community, but then we prayed and the Lord found this boy. And so I want to have my good friend Rory open up the rodeo in prayer today. And I was able to give the Lord the glory, you know. And so when we have miracles, like a little boy is found, you know, and, and it's, it's, it hadn't been found while everyone's looking for a half an hour in this rodeo. Then he's found. Like we're able to give the Lord the glory. And so when there's those miracles or when people would say it's a miracle, we can use that to point to the glorious word of his grace. And so uh, verse four, I'm sure everybody was stoked to learn about Jesus since the word was bona fide by the miracles, right? Or shown to be bona fide by the miracles. Nope. Verse four, a multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. So, you know, Jesus said the gospel will bring a sword. The gospel will divide even best of friends and, and even turn uh, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law. And I'm not sure why Jesus said that, because that always seems like such a strong relationship. Uh, you know, <laughs> father against son, you know, have you ever noticed that in your relationships as you share the gospel, as you start speaking up at the family dinners about Jesus, and all of a sudden there's you're getting less calls, you're getting less texts, you're getting less opportunities to hang out from those people that used to want to hang out with you uh, so well. And so there's a division in the city, And then there's a violent attempt made in verse five by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse. And so this abuse, it speaks of to inciting harm. Like they want to harm uh, these individuals. They, They want to stone Paul and Barnabas and any other Christians. But the boys became aware of this plan and they thwarted it and they uh, rather, I don't know that they thwarted it, but they ran away and they fled uh, to the next two cities, cities of Lycaonia and the surrounding region. Uh, there's a man uh, who, uh, what was his name? So I, I had my notes all loaded up and went to get my iPad this morning and looks like there'd been a little bit of Roblox played on my iPad this week that, that uh, left it dead this morning. So came to the church and uh, iPads weren't working for me. So I'm working off of memory this morning, but uh, gosh, it's not coming to me. There's a, uh, one of the greatest archeological historians uh, from the early late 1800s, early 1900s. And he was actually a, a skeptic of Christianity uh, until he started looking at the archeology span of the Bible and found it to be so true that uh, he would become a Christian and become a great um, theologian and professor of archaeology, of Christian archaeology. And this man, he actually, this text was one of the texts that uh, caused him to become a believer in Jesus. It doesn't seem like much, right? Lystra and Derby, cities of like Lycaonia. Big deal, right? Well, these cities were part of the Roman province of Lycaonia, Lycaonia for a limited part of history, something like 40 years uh, from about uh, you know 10 BC to about uh, 47 AD, so more like 50, 60 years there. And when he saw that the Bible spoke of this, 
And that was that little window of world history where this really was this place. And this really was where this happened for him. That was like, it was just like that straw that broke the camel's back that caused him to become a believer in Jesus. So love how uh, biblical archeology span just shows the Bible to be true and, and stirs up our faith. Uh, so they fled to this region, to these two cities, and they were preaching the gospel there. So again, preaching the gospel. So far in these first seven verses, we have in verse one that they so spoke that a great multitude believed or that uh, I love that word great multitude. I noticed it today back in verse one. I, I was thinking as I was talking, oh, I forgot to share this. I liked that. Uh, so now we're going back to verse one. We're going to start over again. Um, that word multitude, one of the lexicons of the Greek uses the word a bundle. So a bundle of people believed. I like that. When you talk about a harvest or a bushel or a bundle, there was a harvest that day. There was a bundle of people who got saved. So there was the so speaking in verse one. There was in verse three, the bearing witness to the word of his grace. So bearing witness. Um, and then we have them preaching the gospel in verse seven, preaching the gospel in verse eight. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. And so we have these interesting cities. I, Iconium. We have Lystra. You know, every time I think of Lystra, I think of that delicious mouthwash that we use every night before bed. We spit it in, you know, ah, Listerine, you know, uh, or Derby where, you know, they'd always race box cars, you know, and there was a big Awana program there, you know, where they'd make their little cars and okay, anyways, um, Derby. Okay. Uh, so kind of might help you remember. So we have Lystra, a great miracle is going to happen in Lystra, a story that takes us back to Acts chapter three. It's very similar. The story of the lame man in chapter three and the miracle that the Lord did through Peter. And then the lame man of chapter 14 and the miracle that the Lord did through Paul. And if you know Acts chapter 3, as we read it, see if you notice the similarities there. So here's a certain man, uh, has no strength in his feet, uh, since, his, since he was born, he's been crippled, crippled. We don't know how old he is, but he's never walked before. can only imagine. And so we have this man crippled. And then in verse 9, we have this man hears. He heard Paul speaking. And Paul observed him intently and saw that he had the faith to be healed. You know, sometimes when you're preaching, you look out there and you got the people rolling their eyes. You know, uh, when I was first a youth pastor, there was a kid named Ken in my youth group. And uh, he was one of those kids that was really involved in, in the theater program at school. And uh, every every time he spoke, he had a Scottish accent, you know, redhead kid. And he loved the youth pastor before me, just loved him. And when I became the youth pastor, he was just kind of bitter and sad that his buddy was gone. And now he had this schmo, you know, as a youth pastor. And and he'd sit in the back. And every time I tell a joke as a youth pastor, in the back, he'd go, <laughs> you know. And one day he comes up afterwards and he goes, you know, when you tell a joke and nobody laughs. It means you're not funny, you know, I was like, oh, you're such a blessing, Ken. 
And, um, but Ken ended up becoming a very dear, sweet friend. And now he lives down in Hollywood and he's one of those extras in those movies, you know, that they're riding around as knights in shining armors and, and, and those commercials, you know, where they got the, the Scottish guy. He does that, you know, so it worked out for him, you know, and he loves the Lord. But, uh, but when you look out there, you, you look in your crowd and you see the guy rolling his eyes you know, and you see the guy that's asleep. You know, and, and we have those sometimes, you know, and then you see, you know, you see the one that's taking notes, you know, and you get the occasional amen from the southerner in the group, you know, and, and then sometimes you look and you see and you can just tell maybe someone is being impacted by the word of his grace. And you might even see that there's someone that, that the Lord's working in their heart and would maybe even have the faith to respond to the word. And Paul looks out and he sees discernment. And this guy is kind of a notable guy. He's catching his eye. He's a certain man who's lame and maybe sitting on his mat. And the discernment that Paul has there is that this guy has the faith to be healed today. Maybe today in this place, there's someone that has the faith to receive the word of grace and to be saved today and have a spiritual healing here in this amphitheater. Maybe there's someone here today, you have the faith today to make that step and to be baptized and to make that public confession of Jesus. And, and maybe there's someone here today who would have that faith to be healed and to say, Lord, here I am, heal me. This man had that faith, had the faith to be healed. And, and so uh, Paul observed him intently and stared at him. And then verse 10 said with a loud voice, stand up straight on your feet just takes such boldness to do that, such faith to do that, right? Even when I went to pray for the uh, the missing boy the other day, I'm walking towards the grandstand and I just confess to the Lord, I'm kind of afraid, Lord, because this is a group of, of country folk that the ones that are hard to you, they're hard to you because they just, they need to see you move in their life and they haven't been seeing it. And I just fear, Lord, that if I pray that this boy would be found and then he's not found that this would be something that would just clinch the nail in their rejection of you. And I just confess to the Lord, but well, Lord, you're worth being trusted here. And so as I prayed so often, it's just like, okay, Lord, like complete trust in you. And he showed himself to be faithful and he showed himself to be true. And so when he said something that's like, stand up on your feet and either the guy's going to stand up on his feet or he's not. And what happened? This guy stood up on his feet. And this might sound reminiscent to Acts chapter 3. And he leapt and walked. What do you remember from Acts chapter 3? He went walking and leaping and praising God. Right? The old children's song. And here we have a similar miracle. He leapt up. Acts chapter 3 says the guy's ankle bones immediately received strength. And he stood up and went walking and leaping and praising God. Here the guy just leaps up and walks. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices in the Lycaonian language. So it's interesting that Luke tells us the language that they spoke in, a language that Paul and Barnabas probably didn't know. And so maybe at first they heard Oh my goodness, the, the message that Paul and Barnabas has been preaching, it's true. Look, here's the guy that's been crippled our whole lives. 
And they're talking about Jesus and it must have been Jesus that did this. Let's all give our lives to Jesus and worship Jesus. But it was in another language and that's not what they were saying. What did they say in this other language? The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. These guys are gods. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. So perhaps Barnabas had some sort of air of a leader about him. Zeus being more of the the leader type of the false god. And then Hermes was the god of oration, the god of speaking. In fact, we get our word hermeneutics, uh, the art of speaking publicly, the study of uh, speaking publicly, hermeneutics, uh, comes from uh, 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 Hermes. Uh, it comes from that idea of Hermes, uh, this God of speaking. Uh, and so they called Paul Hermes because he seemed to be the chief speaker, but they were saying the gods have come down uh, like this. And you got to say there actually was some cultural background to this. Uh, 50 years before this happened, a poem had been written that told the story of Zeus, Zeus and Hermes, Zeus and Hermes coming down from wherever they dwell coming to the earth and coming around this very area of Lystra and looking for places to spend the night and to sleep. And nobody was hospitable to them. Everyone told them to leave and get out of here, except for one old man and his wife. Uh, They welcomed him in or welcomed them in. And uh, because there was only one hospitable family in the whole area, uh, they... Uh, they basically uh, killed the whole region with a flood and blessed this uh, man and his wife. So everyone but the man and the wife uh, were wiped out. And so these guys are thinking, hey, if the gods have come among us again, uh, then we don't want to miss out on this. And so uh, what did they do? They go to begin blessing and sacrificing to uh, Paul and Barnabas. Look in verse 13. The priests of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitude. So they begin, they're going to full on do some sacrifice to Paul and Barnabas. Uh, as we go to Nepal and we go to the temples of uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, there's a lot of garlands that are made with the local flowers there. And they're placed upon the idols and upon the statues and upon the sacrifices. And uh, it seems to be a very common thing among the sacrificing. Uh, and so they're ready to sacrifice these oxen and have the garlands. And uh, But the apostles, verse 14, when they heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitudes, crying out and saying, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea. And all that are in them. And so I'll pause right there in the little sermon that uh, they give. But uh, they they tear their clothes, which if you read the Old Testament, the priests would do that whenever there was uh, blasphemy. Some have written that he tore his clothes to show his chest hair. Not really, not that part. But uh, to show, I'm just a man like you. All right. And when you read some examples from the, the book of Revelation, there's some times where the John the Revelator gets so overwhelmed by the vision 
that he falls down and begins worshiping the angel giving him the vision. And what is the angel's response when this happens? This angel remembers that there was another angel eons back who desired praise and worship. And it did not go well for that angel named Lucifer. (laughs) When he and a third of his angels were cast out of heaven and were destined for the lake of fire prepared for him and his angels, this angel giving the vision in Revelation says, what are you doing? Get up right now. And he's looking around. Oh, Jesus didn't see that, you know. (laughs) Get up right now. And he says, I am just a fellow servant. Even though I'm an angel, I'm just a servant. Okay, you need to be giving glory to God and worship God. And so that's Paul and Barnabas. If there was a moment that they could have, you know, they just came from another city, Iconium, where they'd been uh, threatened and threatened to be stoned. And and, uh, that was a rough town, that last town. And here we are in this town and a guy was healed and some some people want to barbecue for us. And, you know, let's just let, let the little celebration happen, right? It'll be refreshing in our missionary race. There's a moment that these guys could have, and they just realized, no way, Jose, like we have got to give glory where glory is due. And so they begin to preach the gospel to them. And they say, oh no, you need to turn away from the worthless idols, idols of created things, idols of stone, idols that you've whittled with your own knife or whittled with your own tool, idols that will topple over and you have to pick back up. As Isaiah says, these idols have eyes, but they do not see, ears, but they do not hear. These are worthless things, the book of Isaiah tells us. You need to turn to worship the living God, he says. And so... uh So we're just men turn to worship the living God who made the heaven. He made the earth. He made the sea. He made all that are in them who, and then he uses a a redneck word that we can all appreciate it. Bygone, right? Who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave them without witness in that he did good. He gave rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filled our heart with food and gladness. And you'll notice right now, Paul's witnessing to Gentiles. He's not going back to Old Testament passages like he did in the synagogues that these guys would have no understanding of. He uses the witness of creation. Romans chapter one tells us that by the works of creation, there's evidence that there's a creator that we're accountable to. And so he uses the witness that these people do know in their hearts. They have eternity in their hearts. And he uses the witness of what theologians have called as common grace, that God is good. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. And even in the most pagan of societies, God has still given himself a witness by providing for their needs, giving rain from heaven and good fruitful seasons and good harvests. And there's a book you ought to read called Eternity in Their Hearts. And in that book, uh, there's many testimonies of tribes, remote tribes and villages that had never heard of Jesus through a missionary, but there were these incredible inward witnesses to hearts of the gospel or miracles among creation that turned hearts to worship the Lord. And that's what Paul speaks of here. He says, he's basically speaking to God's common grace to them that they have had their fruitful seasons. They have had their hearts filled up with food Aren't those times of good food filling wonderful? I love a good meal. I love a delicious meal. (laughs) But it's every Thanksgiving that I realize that food makes a horrible God. 
Because <laughs> have you ever starved yourself till Thanksgiving dinner? You're like, I'm not eating any breakfast. I'm not eating any lunch. I'm just eating Thanksgiving dinner. I'm making room. And it's just going to be the best. And it's going to last forever. Right? And then you get to it. And, uh, and you realize like you're full after like, you know, half a plate and you're like, now it's over. That's it. That's, that's what I've like been putting all my hope on all these days. Or how about during our fast when we do a fast as a church, you know, and you fast those five days with the church and you can't wait till the break the fast dinner and everyone's gathering together and there's all kinds of soups and such a feast. And you're just like, today is the day we will feast. And then you forget that the last five days, your stomach has shrunk down and it's got no elasticity. I don't know science, you know, or what the, you know, and then you go and you like, you take your first bite of like a chicken noodle soup. You're going to start out light and then you're going to hit up the hamburger helper, you know, and it's a chicken noodle soup. You're full with some broth and you're like, that's it. That's it. You know, and you realize that true fullness and true satisfaction didn't come through the potluck. But it came through the five days previously when you were at the foot of the Lord and giving him glory and honor and just drinking from the heavenly spring. And so uh, and so Paul is telling them, hey, you guys, God has been so good to you and he's been filling your heart up with joy and with food. And he's done that to point you to him, to his goodness, that you would believe in him. We're going to go in a few weeks in Acts chapter 17 and 18, and we're going to see Paul preaching in Athens of, of a very similar message that now he's calling us to repent. And so uh, verse 18, and with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Uh, we're going to wrap up soon. Uh, here, we're just going to go up uh, through verse 21. So just press in with me here. <laughs> so then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there. And having persuaded the multitude, <clears throat> they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So these Jews that were just bitter and had an axe to grind against the gospel, they made a 100-mile journey just to be a thorn in Paul's side. They went from Iconium uh, to, uh, or I'm sorry, they went from Antioch to Iconium, 100 miles. From Iconium, they went to, uh, oh, in a little bit, they'll go to Derby, which is 60 miles. So 100-mile journey just to be a thorn in Paul's side. And they did just that. They persuaded the multitudes. They poisoned their mind against Paul. And remember back earlier, they threatened and had a plan to stone Paul and to incite harm against him. Well, here that comes to, they actually stoned him. Uh, Paul will write later of the stoning that he had received. And in Galatians, he writes, you remember that I bear on my body the marks of the Lord Jesus from no doubt re referencing that painful, violent, brutal stoning. A lot of times you think that stoning would be uh, you know, just some, let's get this giant boulder and crush this guy with it. Uh, oftentimes history tells us that sometimes they would actually throw a guy off of a cliff or a high place and let that, that wound take place. And then they would stone with littler stones and rocks and just pelt this person so that it was a longer drawn out painful process. And so don't know exactly how it went for Paul, but he bore on his body, the marks of the Lord Jesus and it came to a place where they actually thought he was dead. 
And so they drug him out of the city there. It says they supposed him to be dead. Uh, some, some believe this, you know, it's some speculation, but that, that Paul actually died here. Uh, that he actually died. And there's a couple places in the New Testament. One place he talks about, I know a man who, whether in this body or not, I don't know, the Lord knows, but he ended up being caught up to the third heaven and, uh, and being in the presence of the Lord, he saw unspeakable things. He mentions a couple of times in that Corinthian passage, I know a man, and I don't know, you know, uh, he says, speaking of another man here, they don't know if he was kind of kind of keeping that story distant from himself, or it was actually him that died and, and saw those unspeakable things. But uh, one way or another, he at least was at the point of death. It was supposed that he was dead as he was drug out of the city. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city. So they gathered around him, maybe prayed for a healing. Who knows? He rose up there. You can only imagine if you were dead, maybe you were in the presence of the Lord. Your buddies surrounded you, prayed over you, and you come back to life. You'd be like, ah, come on, guys. You know, um, what are you doing? I was just in the presence of the Lord. Uh, We don't know that. It doesn't specifically say that. They just gathered around him. He got up. If it was me and maybe if it was you and you'd just been stoned and drug out of the city, which direction would you head? I'd be heading back to to uh, Damascus or you know, I'd be heading back to Tarsus, my hometown. Uh, he gets up and goes back into the city. And historians tell us that the Rocky theme song played in the background while he did so. Okay, just goes into the city. You know, whatever, goes to bed, and the next day, it's kind of just this abrupt ending. The next day, he rose up and went with Barnabas to Derby, which was a uh, uh, quite the trek uh, there. And when he preached the gospel to that city, not much is said about the Derby, um, the, the city of Derby, just that he preached the gospel there. He made many disciples there. But then they returned to Lystra, Iconium and Antioch. Are you guys, do you have your map there? Are you able to look at a map and you just kind of see the, the circle, the half circle there up into Galatia and then back through returning verse 22, strengthening the souls of the disciples on his way. And then we're going to pick up next week, uh, what, how he strengthened them. Uh, and it will be with this exhortation next week. We'll look at to continue in the faith. And the exhortation that he gave there. So we're going to go ahead and have the worship team come on up. And you can set your things aside. Why don't we just move to prayer and just move to a response to the word. Lord, we're so thankful for the, the people who've gone before us and who you brought into our life that spoke in such a way that when they spoke the word of God, it, it went straight into our heart and was like a well-driven nail. Thank you for the men and the women and the moms and the dads and the grandparents and the the college youth for Christ leaders and just all of those, the youth pastors and just the people, the friends that loved us enough to speak in such a way 
that the word of God was brought to bear on our hearts. And we pray today that you would bring the word to bear on the hearts in this place. I just want to give opportunity in this place for you that the Lord brought you here to this place, that you would hear the word of God and that you would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would be added to the bundle of those that God is saving. That you would have your sins forgiven and that you would be a partaker of grace. Maybe today is just the, <clears throat> the Bible was taught and you heard today about grace that was something that was like the smell of honeysuckle in the air for you. And just for the first time, just the Lord just spoke to you. It's not about your performance. It's not about your works of righteousness. <clears throat> As the old song says, not the labors of my hands could fill all of your demands. And as you hear of grace today, you hear that it's, it's not about the works of your hands, your good days or your bad days. It's about the works of Jesus. It's about his good day. It's about his hard day on the cross. It's about his days of obedience. That you can be forgiven. And that you can continue to the end. And just right now where you're at. We just invite you to receive that grace. And maybe, maybe where you're at, you would even want to just lift your hand up and say, Lord, today I receive that grace. You just would respond to the word by just saying, Lord, that's me today. I want to receive that grace. I receive your works of perfection. I receive the works of Jesus into my account. And I let Jesus take all of my works of disobedience and nail them to the cross. Just right now where you're at, just like a little child, just receive that and just let the Lord do that for you. Just receive forgiveness today. Let your sins be washed away. Receive the joy that comes from knowing Jesus. The assurance of eternal life that's promised to those who believe upon his name. Even for us who are in Primeville today. There's a river that never ends. And those who drink of it will never thirst again that river of life comes from the presence of Jesus today we just invite you to take of him and Lord here in this place we're Christians Lord some, some just receiving Jesus some new Christians here today baby Christians and Lord we want to be like the missionaries of the early church those missionaries that opened up their mouths and made known the great story of Jesus. We just pray that you would make us that. 
Lord, I just look out in this crowd and I know there's just so many various people, electricians up at Facebook and security guards and baseball coaches and retirees and people that have just clubs that they're a part of in town, people that are part of school, athletes and coaches and just so many various people, tradesmen and craftsmen, people that go into homes and repair bathtubs and build cabinets and distribute uh, food to markets and so many incredible just roles out in this community where they're in presence of people and those people need you, Jesus. So Lord, let us be those that open up our mouths to so speak. And maybe that's you today. You want to just be be one that opens up your mouth to so speak or to speak in such a way that people would believe in Jesus. I want to invite you today, if that's you, to lift up your hands. And I want to pray over you. If just you want to be someone that you just begin to open up your mouth and to tell people about Jesus and to be courageous. You want to be those that, as it says, they spoke boldly in the Lord. They spoke in reliance of the Lord and Just by lifting up your hand today, you're just asking the Lord, Lord, give me a mouth that would open up in reliance on the Lord and would not be ashamed of you. Give me a mouth that would speak in such a way. It might not be the most articulate thing. It might not be just the most um, incredible oratory that's out there. But but Lord, I want to be one that when people hear me, I might sound like a total redneck or someone from a backwater or something like that from the bayou or something like that. But Lord, they would hear me speak and they would just, they would just believe in you for your glory. And just Lord, I just pray as people are lifting up their hands and just saying, Lord, I realize that you want me to be an open mouth vessel for you. Would you just pour your Holy spirit on them afresh today and just give them those opportunities. And we just pray that people would get saved through these friends that are saying, I want to be used by you in this way, Lord. Lord, we pray that we would be those that give glory to you, that would not share your glory with another, Lord. We would just give glory to you that when people praise us, when people praise us for the great things that that we do, that we would turn and reflect like a mirror in all to your glory and say it's all to the glory of the Lord, just as Paul was able to restrain those from worshiping him. We want to be those that reflect your glory throughout this world. And so as we close today, will you stand with me? And maybe you today, you've prayed a prayer, just believing in Jesus for the first time. You just gave your sins to him. You let him forgive you. You just feel that weight lifted off of you and put upon Jesus. And oh, there can be a breath in your lungs and a spring in your step again because of the gospel of Jesus I want to invite you today to maybe take another step. And today, the day you got saved, you would join us at the waters of baptism. And uh, and also with that, maybe you've been a Christian for, you know, a number of months, a number of years. And you just know today's the day uh, I need to make this stand. It's the last baptism of the summer. And it's the day for me to get baptized. I need to make that public stand. Uh, I want to invite you guys over to the waters of baptism. We have a number of people that are planning on getting baptized today. So if you want to go ahead and just pivot, we'll pivot that direction. And if you're close to the baptismal, you might want to kind of scooch out of the way just a bit. So you don't get splashed. And, and uh, we'll kind of finish out worshiping today. 
uh, pointing that direction, celebrating the newness of life that the Lord has brought to our friends here today. We give you glory today, Lord. Amen.